a podcast listener. Even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Welcome back to the podcast, Boss Man. Hey, man. Question for you. <laughs> what is... Don't be scared. I'm scared. It's unscripted. It's not on the script. I know. What's your resting heart rate? Wake mm. up in the morning. I have no idea. We should set a benchmark. In fact, I almost sent you an email last night. We booked... Okay. Winter's over here in beautiful, sunny Austin, Texas, number one. Number two... COVID's over pretty much. I mean, I had a three-day run last week where I completely forgot about the pandemic. We're making future plans. This, this actually was a, kind of a moving feeling. I was like, I just feels good. Like even to see people in the park sort of interacting differently, like groups of people. And I don't know, man, it just felt like I had a fresh outlook on life. Winter's over. We booked tickets to go to the continent this summer. And I got to started thinking about- The continent. I started- <laughs> I started thinking about our fitness levels need to improve if we were going to get over those mountains on our bicycles. That's right. And so I almost did send you an email of our targets that we should be at by June <laughs> in order to fully enjoy the continental cycling experience. Well, so, I'm a step ahead of you, my friend. That's why I'm asking what your resting heart rate is when you wake up in the morning. And it definitely relates to pandemic feeling like it's somewhat over, which is like, oh, man. Got to cool it with the Marg. Start to think that I might survive this. <laughs> Anyways, I got a Wahoo. They make some pretty cool stuff. Anyways, I got the watch and I got the the deal from my bike. And we've been like comparing notes and, and whatnot because I know that you have that system too. It's pretty cool to see in, in track fitness, uh, especially because, yeah, we are headed to Barcelona this summer. We will be doing some epic rides. and It does make sense for us to get in a little bit of better shape for that. Yeah. So. You got a couple inches and a couple pounds on me, so I'm not expecting you to be exactly <laughs> in the same range as me, but I am curious You're to know what that number is. just moving around for me. Can you imagine the effort for me just to get to the fridge? It's incredible. I'm out of calories burned. <laughs> <laughs> All right, boss man. Uh, we have a really exciting episode today with so many TMBA themes. One of the themes we talk about a lot is when you put out new products into the world, new services that like people, different people come out of the woodwork. And one of the cool things about having a recruiting service at Dynamite Jobs is that we're seeing different kinds of companies and founders come our way, particularly ones that need great high paid staff that are growing fast. And today's founder has a company that's providing opportunities exactly like that. And we're going to dig into that story today. But first, I wanted to talk about some of those features that we're building that are attracting high growth founders over to Dynamite Jobs for a really exciting launch. I, there's this meme that I just absolutely love. Basically, like founders, they don't want to talk about marketing. They want to talk about features. Totally. Tell me about features, man. <laughs> I want to hear some of the features. You're heading up the product team. Tell me about what you guys have uh, launched just today. I feel like this is about to turn into marketing, but I'll make it about the features. I mean, that's the line <laughs> that you're trying to tow, right? Yeah, we released a pretty interesting feature, a set of features actually this week, which I think is going to pay off for both candidates and um, 
companies. So essentially what it is, it's like a little mini ATS. ATS is applicant tracking software. One of the things that we found over at uh, DJ is that um, a lot of companies, they don't use like these kind of uh, bigger ATS systems. There's a bunch of them out there, but basically if you post your job with these ATS, they syndicate them out to all different types of job posts, job boards rather. And uh, then they also organize the candidates for you. And uh, what we had set up previously was uh, basically Airtable links. So um, if you posted a job with us before, we give you an Airtable link and it would link to a bunch of questions. And I think we've developed like a pretty interesting system for coming up with some of the right types of questions that companies should be asking. Whether it's hiring a marketer or a developer or one of these different roles, I think there's uh, different questions that you should be asking people. And so essentially people would sign up, they would post a job and they would say, yeah, tell me what questions I should ask people and, and basically collect all my applications for me so I can view them in one place, basically an ATS. And we had kind of cobbled together Airtable um, to do this. And Airtable is pretty powerful. We actually broke it the other week. It's kind of weird. Like we we surpassed the amount. Airtable's an amazing piece of software. I I feel like the the folks over at Airtable like look at our account and they're like, hmm, these guys are these guys are really pressing the issue. And so we released this feature. It's essentially a dashboard for companies. So what we've done is we've made it so your questions are built into the platform. You post on the platform, obviously, your job, and then your applicants come to you in the platform. So so you post a job, you use our questions. You can also add in your questions as well. And then um, you will start to see your applicants in your dashboard. And the reason this is like super cool to me is because people can basically apply with their profiles now. So on the other side of the equation is uh, candidate profiles, which we built out a while ago. It's one of our first features. And so if you apply with your profile to one of these jobs, it makes it very easy to apply to jobs. Like So... I think great for the candidates because it's essentially like one click apply. And then also great for the companies because all of your candidates are organized within this ATS. You can message them, you can accept them, you can decline them, you can do all kinds of cool stuff. And it's basically V1 for us, but I think it's like a way that we can tie the candidates and the companies closer in. These candidates, like one of the biggest things that we hear from them is number one, it takes a long time to apply. Number two, I never hear about the status of my application. Yeah. working on both of those things so so basically like as a company when you're in the back end of this ats we were it was, it was cool the other day we had a product call we were so focused on speed because you can hit the little indications of yes no no obviously most candidates are going to say no to yeah and that would automatically indicate to the candidate provided you have the right settings clicked that bam you didn't get the job no hard feelings and then on the other side the number one critique that companies are problem companies have is they want to know how to maximize the number of applications they're getting for their investment. Yeah. And what's cool is we have this leads the way to a lot of features that we can add on the back of it. Like we will be able to predict how many applications you get based on the questions you're answering. That's right around the corner more detailed analytics. Yeah, like V234 is very exciting. This is kind of the baseline product. Um, there's a lot of other really small things that we integrated into this launch. For example, if you apply as a candidate, um, you can edit your application until it's been viewed by the employer. This was a big fear of candidates too, which is like, oh man, I forgot to answer that question or I didn't, I, I want to change my answer now that I've like thought about it. Or I put the wrong resume on there or whatever. Exactly. And before it's like you submit it, and then it just like goes into the black hole and, and that's it. And if an employer sees like two or three applications from you, 
delete this person. What are they thinking? But now you can kind of edit it. So I think that there's going to be some things that are wins. Maybe that's a win. Maybe it's a loss. I'm not sure, but we're tinkering around. So we talked about a lot about features, uh, a little bit of marketing. I just want to share an idea I've seen out on the web and we have it on our to-do list and I want to try it and see if it works, which is to break out some of these features on its own domain so that companies could learn about Dynamite Jobs by using our ATS. So for example, like if it was really easy for you to build a form of the best questions at the highest conversion rate for your job, you might use that on other job sites. And then eventually you say, hey, who built this cool form builder? Oh, it's Dynamite Jobs. So we have a couple ideas like that that are marketing experiments, and hopefully we can run them here in the next few weeks and months and see if they pay off. I'm kind of interested in that, Dan. You know, you brought that up the other day, and I think some people listening to the show might be like, well, you you guys went through all this trouble to build this domain. You bought the .com. Now you've got like a serious (laughs) infrastructure on it. So like, why go to a different domain and release these features? Well, the philosophy behind it is, first off, it's something to talk about that's not this like large amorphous platform that you may or may not agree with. It's a simple tool that's easy to share and to discuss. But further, it takes a lot of trust to decide that you're going to take your HR budget and put it into DJ. But it doesn't take a lot of trust to say, hey, like here's a tool that's going to help me hire better and I can use it anywhere. I don't have to make some big buying decision here. And so I think the reality is, is a salary calculator or um, a remote team ATS system, they're more relevant right now to more companies. And it's something worth talking about. And that's fundamentally what marketing is. So I do think it's a decent idea to experiment with breaking out features. There's a lot of companies who successfully do this. And it's something you know we want to try. And we'll keep you updated here on the show if, if it works or not. And again, back to the top, this whole conversation that we're going to play today was inspired by the fact that we put out a recruiting service and some great founders are coming through. Today's guest is just one of them. Keep your spidey senses up for the importance of having quality conversations with customers. And that often happens through the founder. And today's startup is a software startup, but we're going to talk a lot about customer development and how having great customer service people and salespeople can turn problems into product. And often you insist that everything happens to your software. Those transactions are going to be lower dollar. Sometimes you're just a phone call away from turning a $50 transaction into a $5,000 transaction. And in fact, larger companies pay precisely for those phone calls. And you can get great margins on them by having quality people in your team as part of what we help people do. The next theme I flagged up here in my notes, Ian, is founder fit and pedigree. I think employment is a great litmus test of your skill level, your network, what you're able to bring to the table. So when you see a founder like today's guest with such a great pedigree of employment, it's no surprise that they're going to be able to duplicate that kind of success when they own their own company. And finally, a theme that really resonates with me is that the world doesn't always respond to your efforts. Just because you decide to focus full-time on your startup doesn't mean that it's going to double that next year. And that's one of the most frustrating, um, anxiety-producing. Really being a startup founder is exploring the unknown. And that means you're going to waste a lot of time. You're going to put your energy after things that don't make a difference. And that's frustrating and scary. 
we're talking with conviction at the beginning of the show about these new features that we're launching over at DJ. And the truth is, how many of these are going to stick? It'll be interesting for us to track that. And it's probably something we should do as a software company is say, we released like 30 features this year and only like five of them were revenue producing or whatnot. And I think that it can be demoralizing. It can be frustrating. It can be also great when they work. But to put it in the context of what you're trying to achieve and understanding that it's not always going to work out, I think is important. So for us, Dan, especially... Yeah, we've had quite a few meetings in the past few years where we're just sitting there looking at something we worked so hard on. And it's like, yeah, I guess that's a nothing burger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, today's episode, hopefully uh, very much a something burger. And uh, the reality is, is like we're building software. Today's guest is building software and SaaS. You still need great people in your company. Uh, we'll also touch on how working working within Silicon Valley tech firms can be confining, why going full in on a side business doesn't necessarily equate to it immediately growing bigger and faster, and the reason some founders mistakenly neglect enterprise clients and a whole lot more. So today's guest is Ben Dowling, the founder and CEO of ipinfo.io, and I'll read from their website here, the trusted source for IP address data. So it started as an API, Ian, and it's turned into a company that builds software around IP address data. I'll let Ben explain what exactly it does. We create data sets about IP addresses. And so that is sort of always broadening in, in scope. You give us an IP address and we'll tell you stuff about it, right? And so our, our sort of our main data set is geolocation. So, you know, if here's an IP address. We'll say, you know, this is in Seattle or this is in Miami or wherever that may happen to be. And that's one, one piece of our data. What's a use case that company would want to want that information for and, and how would you provide it to them? So yeah, lots of different use cases. Big segment of our customers are cybersecurity customers. And so they may want to say, you know, hey, I've seen a failed login attempt on this website or, you know, someone's trying to breach our network security. Where is this, right? It's an important piece of contextual information. If it's like, oh, it's, you know, it's down the street. Maybe it's just, you know, some guy was working from home and, and did the long logging, right? If it's coming from China or Russia, that's a bit more suspicious, right? Wouldn't expect an a employee to be logging in from there. And so, yeah, it's an important piece of context for a cybersecurity use case, but even things like website personalization. So you have lots of websites. If you go to their website, they may want to pre-select you on a country. You know, so if you went to ikea.com, you know, if I go visit it from the US, I want to see here are the prices in dollars, here are the things that are available in my market. If I went to the UK and went to ikea.com, you know, I'd want to see the price in pounds and want to see you know, the, the different things that are available there. And so you know, that's a piece of, of geolocation data at the country level. Then the city level, right? The same thing. Whereas if I wanted to go to ikea.com and it could say, hey, you know, here's the store down the road from you in Seattle, right? And it could do that without me having to give the website any details. You know, I wouldn't have to enter a zip code or whatever. It's just passive information available from the IP address and we provide that, that data. So that's the, and all sorts of marketing use cases, right? You might want to analyze the, the traffic to your website and say, hey, how many visitors did we have? per country or per city last month. And then we want to say, well, hey, look, you know, we had a big influx in users from Seattle last month. Why don't we, you know, whether we want to throw an event there or we want to send an email to them. And so it just gives you more context. And then depending on the use case, depending on the type of customer, they'll go and, and do something based on that. We also have lots of customers that build these sorts of products and offerings that use our data for, for that, that purpose within their product. And so it's not like uh, you're building like this wholesale, it's not like a retail offering really. Like in most use cases, people are, wanting to build 
So geolocation is one of our data sets, right? We have lots of other data sets as well that give different pieces of context, often that can be used with geolocation. So one of our data sets is privacy detection. And so we'll say, hey, you know, this IP address is a, a proxy server or a VPN server. And that's often useful with geolocation because with geolocation, we could say, hey, look, you know, we've, this IP address seems to be in Seattle. But if it's a VPN, we'll still say, hey, this is in Seattle. But it, it, the fact that it's a VPN means the user is very unlikely to be there, right? There's just a server somewhere in Seattle that you know, users are tunneling through. And so that privacy detection can be an additional piece of context there to say, well, yeah, there is a, you know, this IP address is in Seattle, but the user likely isn't. Other context we've got are things like mobile carrier detection. We'll say, hey, you know, this is a, a mobile device IP. Some customers just need one of our data sets, you know, that's geolocation. Some people may want, I need mobile data for different things. Our customers tend to be either at the sort of the, the low end of the market. So, you know, you say the smaller companies with, with sort of five or 10 people. And we have a self-serve offering that's popular with those type of customers where a complete end-to-end, -end, say, solution, if they wanted to, you know, solving the whole problem, whether it's this big analytics tool, whether it's a big marketing thing, whether it is a an e-commerce fraud solution, a full solution tends to be too expensive for these companies, right? They may say, well, hey, look, I've got some developers, I've got some skills, I just need some raw data so I can kind of implement a basic version of this myself. Or we may want to buy your data and we want to use it for a few different solutions. And so it's cheaper for us to come buy some of this data with you. And then our other solar customers are customers that are right at the other end, the customers that are building these sort of full solutions themselves and they want the best data. And so then they come and say, hey, we want your great geolocation data, but we'll go and build the sort of the full end-to-end -end fraud solution. And so that's, we see like a lot of huge customers that are building these full end, end services and solutions. And then the small customers that are kind of having to do it in-house. And in the middle, you've got these businesses that, you know, I've got enough budget, haven't got enough time and just want to go and buy a solution and, and you know, that makes sense for them. Our data is applicable for lots of different use cases. There is often a, a solution you go buy for one specific thing. That's interesting. I, I want to like go back to the beginning of your story and work up to here and talk about some of the challenges, but I can kind of relate to it a little bit because we're building a marketplace platform and we recently paid, we pay $6,000 a year for a data set from a company that scrapes the web for certain kinds of data they don't want to build applications around it. We're wholesale taking that data and then we're visualizing it to our customers. And so uh, I'm assuming a lot of your clients are doing similar sorts of things with the data you sell. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Could you let us know what the scope of your company is? Because I know, I guess we got it connected because you are hiring on Dynamite Jobs, which is really cool. So how many employees do you have and, and how do you all organize the company? We're just over 20 people now, but we're you know, we've got a few people we're interviewing currently and a few people we've made offers to. So I suspect probably, you know, in the next two to four weeks, we'll probably be closer to 25 people. Um, we're completely remote, have been from day one. And so we've got people in all sorts of different time zones. How we structure and organize things is always evolving as the team size grows. And I think, you know, this is something that I've seen a few times now. It's like what worked really well for us at five people was okay at 10, but sort of sucked at 15. And so you know, were constantly updating things. Most of our sort of work is done asynchronously. And it, it depends obviously on the team. You know, initially, you know, the first five people were sort of all engineers, right? And it's very easy to just heads down, everyone's cranking out code, communicating over GitHub, meetings at all. It's it's all, you know, the code is is where all, all the, the stuff lives. Now we've got a bunch of teams. We've got even different engineering teams. We've got design team. We've got sales teams, marketing. Still a bunch of small teams, but we sort of structured in this this sort of team way. But I think the common threads throughout the company are most teams will meet up sort of for a meeting once every couple of weeks. We try and document a bunch of stuff in Notion and you know, keep documentation up to date in Notion, meeting notes. That's something we've, we're have we trying to get better at now as you know, we're, we're ramping up hiring and bringing on some more people. 
that's one of the sort of initiatives we're working on at the moment is, is getting these sort of more clear separations between the tools that, that different teams use. I notice you're in an office with a logo on the wall. I am. Why don't you work from home? And, and are you tempted to rope your whole team into your office uh, every few weeks? Do you have this remote founder fantasy? Yeah, so I, um, I, I do have my office. It's an office of just me, which I like. I like it just being, being my space. I have worked from home for a long time. So originally I got this office because my basement flooded and my office was in the basement. Where are you located, by the way? I'm in Seattle. Okay. Then also the pandemic, obviously with my kids then having to do school from home, Initially, I was very excited about that. I was like, this is great. Like, I'm working from home. My kids will be at home. We can spend more time together, have fun. But it was fun for a week. And then, you know, then it sucked for the kids. It sucked for me. I'm on calls and my kids are running in. And then my basement flooded. And so I was like, okay, I've got to go get an office and get some space. And my office is like two blocks from my house. Uh, And so that works well. This is sort of a strange question, but I'm tempted to ask. I'm assuming you identify with the role. You're the CEO of the company right now. Are you the CTO? Okay, CEO. What? is like a good day for you? How is it structured? Like, let me know your calendar for a good work day, like a solid Tuesday or Wednesday. What does it look like? Good day could be a bunch of different things, right? And I guess my, like my day changes pretty much week to week, sometimes day to day. Lately, what I've been spending some of my time on is as we're planning, you want to hire four or five people probably in the next sort of four to six weeks. So making sure that our job descriptions are looking good, making sure that our onboarding is going to be good, um, you're reaching out to the last few people we hired and saying, hey, what was good about our onboarding? What sucked? And that's really interesting because there are a bunch of blind spots that I thought the issues they would have with onboarding were like, oh, it was difficult for me to learn about this specific part of our product or difficult for me to learn this internal tool. And that was somewhat true. But the biggest blind spot for me was like, who the hell is everybody? Who works on what does everybody do? And that was a complete blind spot for me because obviously I know everybody and I know what everybody does. And so, you know, what our products do, you know, people can go figure that out, but it's, hey, there's, there's 20 people here now who should I even start talking to? And if I've got an issue, who should I go and ask? And so, yeah, my time you know, for the past few weeks has been spent on things like this where I think, okay, this is going to make hiring easier and it's going to make our hires more effective. I spent, spent a bunch of my time in, in meetings with the team. A bunch of my time is spent on calls with the team, whether that's one-on-ones with people, whether that's you know jumping into data team calls, web team calls. Are you largely, like as Paul Graham would say, your manager time right now at this phase in the company as opposed to maker time? That's been an interesting transition. So my time has shifted pretty much from initially, obviously, almost exclusively maker to now I get to do some making, very little. Most of my time is spent manager time. Yeah. And like, you know, most of my time is spent, is rare that I have a day with like out any meetings in my calendar. And obviously you know, the, the big distinction between maker and managers, like, like time slots. So even you know, the little bit of maker time I can eke away might be like, oh great, I've got a two hour block in my calendar. You know, I can jump into some stuff. It's pretty rare I'll have a, a clear day on my calendar. It happens the occasional Friday, but um, yeah, usually there's a bunch of stuff scheduled. If you need help getting control of your email inbox, this is for you. That's right. This episode is brought to you by the team at MailmanHQ.com. It's a Gmail plugin that lets you decide when and what emails land in your inbox. Many of our listeners spend a huge portion of their days inside of their inbox. And if you're one of them, pay close attention to the next 30 seconds. See, Mailman allows you to set up your own emailing schedule on both your personal and work Gmail accounts such that all incoming emails are collected and delivered to your inbox as per the schedule you set up that's in batches so nothing drops in between. 
Now, what about those urgent emails? Don't worry. Mailman lets you configure your VIPs so their emails will land in your inbox immediately so you can respond and make progress in your business. And there's so much more too. So get a defender and an ally in your inbox. Get Mailman. Sign up for a free account over at mailmanhq.com slash tropical MBA. If you use that link and decide to upgrade to a paid plan, you'll get 30% off your first year via this link. So here it is again, mailmanhq.com slash Tropical MBA. Thanks to the team at Mailman HQ for sponsoring the show. Go give them a try. Give them a look. Get ahead on your inbox. Again, that's mailmanhq.com slash Tropical MBA. I thought it would be interesting if we could kind of walk through your narrative a little bit and how you got into entrepreneurship in the first place. I have written down here that you were working as an engineer for a company that got bought out and you moved to San Francisco like yep. sight unseen? Yep. No, so yeah, so I, I was always pretty entrepreneurial and, and you know, most of my time, you know, most of my career in London, I've been working for startups. The second hire at one, I think it was the third or fourth hire at another. And so, you know, I was big into reading Paul Graham essays and, and spending time on Hacker News and starting my own side projects with dreams of them being big. Um, you know, as an engineer also wanted to, you know, grow as an engineer and, and work on difficult problems. And so, you know, the, the, you're being an engineer at a startup was great. And I, I, love, I love that. I guess stress, but like, I, I find it very exciting and, and good stress, right? Like, oh, we've, re- you know, we've really got to find something, we've really got to, got to get something done and something you really pour yourself into. And so, yeah, I did a few startups in London. The last one I was at before I ended up in Silicon Valley, we've been doing it for about, I think it's about nine months. And we were, it was, we had some moderate success. It was an Android photo sharing app. And we were feeling really good about it. And then Instagram launched on Android. And we were like, hey, we've got a big head start and then we'll be much better. But their app was better than ours in every way. And I think, you know, within a week or something, you know, we've, been, we've been on the app store for I think maybe seven months. Maybe we had like three or four million downloads. And I think within a week, they were like, they'd matched us. And so, we're like, okay, you know, this is pretty clear that, that their app's a lot better. The whole team ended up at Facebook. And so we flew out to the Silicon Valley for a week. Uh, the founder of that company had previously worked at, at Google and, and you know, uh, knew a bunch of people in the valley and sort of arranged a bunch of meetings to say, hey, we've got this great team. We build these great Android apps, but you know, we're looking for a new home, right? This app isn't viable. Uh, I'd spent a whirlwind week going through a bunch of interviews and everything. And then you know, Facebook made us an offer and said, hey, we'd like the whole team to come join. And it was four months later. My wife at this time was pregnant. So we got a two-year-old daughter. By the time it came, we got our visas to move to America. Uh, my wife was seven, almost eight months pregnant. And so her first ever trip to America was <laughs> landing your know, one-way ticket uh, to Silicon Valley. Uh, we landed on the Saturday, which was the first day we could get in our visas. I had to start work on Monday because my healthcare wouldn't start until I started work. Great adventure. And then ended up at Facebook for a couple of years. That was a really great experience. That was how we ended up in the States. Take a quick sidebar here, Ben. Uh, High-pressure question. I don't want to start any... Uh global debates, but the producer of this podcast is very entrepreneurial and from London. And sometimes we'll have these conversations like, oh, the business culture in Europe versus the business culture here. And do you have any things that you noticed about the difference between startups in London versus in Silicon Valley that were notable to you? Well, I noticed a bunch of differences. So when I was in London, there was a very small seemingly a small sort of startup scene and, and tech entrepreneurial scene. And so it's pretty close knit. I would see the same faces at the different events and we'd all go out and, and have beers and chat about our crazy ideas and, and different tech. And then I thought it'd be similar in Silicon Valley. But I think just because it's so much of a bigger ecosystem, there wasn't that sort of like small sort of family close knit type environment. I think also 
one thing I noticed when I was at Facebook, you know, part of my thing was, hey, get to Silicon Valley, right? That's the, the sort of the mecca for tech entrepreneurship. When I joined Facebook, it was back in 2012. And I was thought, thought, yeah, you know, I could, this is great. I'll meet a bunch of like-minded entrepreneurial people. There were some of those at Facebook, but a, a lot of people were at Facebook that had, you know, maybe been at Microsoft for five years and Google for five years. And so like that sort of mature, stable tech company in London didn't really exist, right? That's like all the financial institutions, right? People go and work at the banks and, and things like that. Whereas the tech scene was very like- Cowboy, cowboy country kind of thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, whereas- in Silicon Valley, it felt like you know the the big stable companies that sort of projected out to the world, hey, we're this sort of like fun loving startup thing. Actually, felt much bigger and more organised and sort of yeah less entrepreneurial than I anticipated it might be. One of the big positive differences I noticed between the UK and the US is in the US and particularly at Facebook you'd want to be the best at something, right? And so Facebook was, we want to be the best social network. And within teams, like how do we be the best? And it was very unapologetic to want to be the best, right? And it was almost like the attitude was like, hey, if you don't want to be the best, why even try? Why go and try and create an okay social network? In the UK, I think the attitude is almost the opposite. Obviously, that, you know, if you're building a startup there, you're serving a much smaller market, that it's very much okay to build just for your small local market, that there isn't this sort of global ambition to be the best at something. If you said, hey, I want to go and build the world's greatest thing, or I want to be a great engineer or do something, there would be a bit of a, well, that's, that's a little arrogant, right? Whereas in the US, I think you know, it can sometimes come across as arrogance, but I think it actually isn't arrogance at all, right? It's like, well, of course you want to be the best. It's fine if you don't get to be the best, right? It's fine if you don't hit that, but that should be your ambition. That should be what you want. I saw that a lot at Facebook, and I saw that a lot throughout Silicon Valley as well. And that really struck me as a big difference from being in the UK to the US, in the UK, if you said I wanted to be the best, people would say, well, that, that's a high bar to meet. Whereas in the US, if you weren't aiming to be the best, then like, why are you even trying, right? And that, that was a, it's a, a really good and, and positive attitude. Speaking of being the best, you ended up at Calm.com, which is a startup that got tons of accolades and attention. I'm curious, uh, how did your journey land you there? Yeah, so I was at Facebook. I've been there for a couple of years. I had a great time, learned a bunch, but like I say, it was clear that it was sort of a, a later stage company, didn't feel super entrepreneurial. You know, I was having a lot of meetings and, and, you know, and I wanted to get back to starting something and, and being entrepreneurial. I like having impact. I think that was part of the issue at um, Facebook. You know, it's great to see a large successful company from the inside, but also at many times it felt like, is it going to make any difference if I don't turn up today or not? Right. And it's like, not really. Someone yeah. else will do that work. Right. Or like, does this work even necessarily need to be done? Whereas at a startup, that's that's obvious. And so I thought that was my sort of measure of sort of personal impact is, well, hey, if if it doesn't really matter if I actually do this or not, then then why even do it? Why, why not go work on something more interesting, more exciting? Yeah, and, and potentially less lucrative, potentially harder work. I enjoyed the delicious lunches and the free ice cream and everything at Facebook and <laughs> celebrities coming around and saying hi and you know everybody high-fiving you for working at Facebook. But the actual day-to-day is, hey, this doesn't really correlate with the actual sort of contribution I feel I'm making towards it. And part of the whole reason I wanted to come out to the Valley in the first place was to experience like, you know, the life of a, a real startup that's in Silicon Valley. Clearly, Facebook still had a lot of potential ahead of it and a, a lot of things to figure out. But I was sort of late to that party, like that Facebook had, had dialed a lot of stuff in and it, I wanted to get back to an earlier stage startup. And so, you know, throughout my life, I've been working on little side projects and hobby projects, right, to help improve my dev skills or, you know, figure something out. And so, I, you know, I was always doing that throughout my career. And at Facebook, you know, I launched IPM as a, a simple API, right, 
wasn't monetized, it was just a little API. And so that was starting to get some traction. So you launched IP Info as just, hey, weekends and evenings, I just kind of toss it out on the web. and Yeah, little side project, no hopes or ambitions for it. It was a useful project for me. I had to set up geolocation data a few times on a few different servers. You had to download the data and set up a cron job to make sure it's updated. And I'd done that four or five times and it was a headache. So I said, well, let's just do it once on one server, wrap it in an API. This will save me that pain going forward. And I launched it and then you started getting some traction and some people started using it. So that was already sort of building momentum at the point I decided to leave Facebook. And IP Info was getting some traction and it was clear that it was probably going to continue to grow, but it didn't feel like it needed me at that moment. It was like, well, hey, this can wait and take longer. Calm was an opportunity that I thought was more time sensitive. So Alex Chu, the CEO of Calm, so we'd met in London uh, years before and we'd actually done a few side projects and you know, I, I did a little bit of work on the, the Calm website for him and we stayed in touch. It was clear that Calm needed some engineering help, right? He'd hired some contractors and things and, and he had an app that was buggy. It would sometimes crash and you know, lose everybody's sessions and everything. But the feedback that he was getting from users was phenomenal. You know, he would share these emails with me where pe- you know, people were saying, hey, look, I was a drug addict and you know, your app has helped me get past this or like, you know, to save my marriage, all these like really impactful things. And I was like, wow, if this app that crashes, right, that is pretty terrible, has this impact on some users, like imagine if the app actually worked, right? And Alex had always had a really clear vision of, of what Calm could be. You know, I remember when we were talking about it before he'd even launched the app a mental fitness brand, right, would help people through meditation and all these other things. And so he did that from absolutely from day one. The, his vision is incredible. He clearly needs some help on the engineering side. This could be the start that I get to go on that, that journey with, right? This is what I wanted to come to Silicon Valley for. And so I jumped in and, and yeah, joined a CTO and, and was there for a couple of years. A great engineering team was built out. A bunch of great content people came in. And so, yeah, for a couple of years, Calm was in a really good place and was really starting to get some really strong initial traction. It was funny. So I, I was commuting to San Francisco for, for Calm and I'd walk around in my Calm t-shirt every day. And at the start, people would be like, what the hell is this? And I'd have to explain it to them and say, oh, that, that's a bit like Headspace, it sounds like. And I'd say, yeah, it's kind of like that. And then by the end of the two years, everybody was just sort of high-fiving me and saying, I love Calm. So it's interesting to see like how much things have changed over those two years. And in parallel, IPM for that, you know, it had some initial traction when I left IPM for a couple of years before and continued to grow and develop. And so in the meantime, you know, when I'm commuting up to San Francisco from Mountain View on the Cal train, uh, you know, it's just over an hour on the train, you know, initially I might do some IPM for emails in the morning, right? And then get on with my Calm work. And then, you know, I might be doing some IP info coding on the, the train back. But over the two years, it got to the point where, like, I was doing support emails the whole train ride in, right? And I get into the calm office, and I still hadn't finished all the support emails that came in overnight, right? And then I would get on the train home, and, like, I'd, there'd be even more emails. Was there any revenue coming in at this? Yeah, there was, re- yeah, there was revenue coming in. So there's revenue coming in that was steadily growing. So, so that was the other inflection point. By the time I'd left decided to leave Calm, the IPM for revenue was more than my Calm salary and was continuing to grow. So it felt pretty safe at that point, right? It's like, okay, there's all this demand, there's revenue there and it's growing. I wasn't taking a leap of faith to start IPM for and like, hey, this maybe won't, won't work out. I think I'd eliminated any chance of it not working out. There was a question of what could it be, right? Could this be a 
company that supports five people, 20 people, 50 people, right? Like, what is the opportunity? What do you think? So I still don't know. It's, 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 a, it's an interesting question because contrasting sort of Alex's vision for Calm, which from day one was, you know, this audacious vision of like one day we'll own an island, right? Where people go for retreats and like had it all mapped out. So my approach to IP Info is completely the opposite, which is like, hey, there's this fun thing to work on that some customers have some needs for and let's see where it goes. And so there isn't this sort of like, here's the end goal. There's like, here's where we are today and, and I know what's next, right? Like I know that customers are asking for this specific thing and here's where we fall short. And I know that if we go and tackle, that's going to need three or four more people, grow our revenues by a certain amount, right? We know that roughly this many customers are interested in it. And so there's some, you know, there's a bet there that around that, but very much sort of like, it sounds like brick by brick. Yes, exactly. A very sort of incremental. And that's not only been sort of how we've built the the product and the service. It's also been how we built the team, right? The whole team has sort of evolved that way where it originally was me completely part-time. After I left Calm, it was just me full-time. And then it was, well, hey, you know, I've got all these support emails. Let's get someone to help out part-time with these, right? And then that evolved into, okay, now that's a full-time role, right? Um, oh, we need some uh, part-time designer to help with a project. So that both the sort of the product and the business, but also the team has sort of grown organically that way. I just want to give a big thanks to all of you who listened to ads like this and went on over to dynamitejobs.com to see what we've got going on over there. Because of that, we've helped place hundreds of qualified remote professionals in your companies last year. And for this holiday season, many of you are gearing up your operation for continued growth in 2022. And to help you do it, we've got three exciting options for you to explore. The first is our entirely new hiring platform with a job post dashboard that allows you to repost and promote anytime. We've got a growing list of features there, including intelligent promotion options to help you get the maximum amount of applications. We've also got our done for you service. If you're sick of sorting, assessing, and interviewing, you can hire our senior recruiting staff to do the heavy lifting on your behalf. They are experienced at identifying trajectory, alignment, salary fit, and much more. And the best part is it's a flat fee. If you're hiring multiple times in 2022, we're offering bundles with steep discounts. Head on over to dynamitejobs.com and book a call to hear about that. And finally, we offer contract recruiting. That's right, a zero risk hiring option. If you don't really know about the long-term fit, or if you're looking for a partner to help take care of the legalities of hiring contractors, we can do that for a monthly fee for the contractors that you bring on board. So let's grow together. If you're looking to grow your remote business, book a call with our team and find out today how Dynamite Jobs can help. You can find out about this and much more over at dynamitejobs.com slash remote recruiting. You mentioned in the early days that you made a bunch of mistakes. I actually wrote down some of them here. <laughs> You mentioned that hiring was difficult for you in the early days. Were there like a, a set of ownership style tasks that surprised you when you did go solo on IP Info? I think the big challenge there was actually what to do with that extra time. Being a, a only able to do IP Info part-time initially as a side project while also you know, working a, a demanding job at Calm made it so I was super focused. The product had to be super focused. What I spent my time on had to be super focused. And so, you know, things like we didn't build out a user dashboard. You know, if people had an issue, they had to email me and I'd email them back. And it's, I get one email a month. What's the point of spending a month building a dashboard, right? I can do this in five minutes. And so there was laser focused on let's have a great API because that's why people are using us. And yeah, even if I spent a month on a dashboard, it would be okay. And so why, why even bother? Now, by the time I switched to do it full time, 
all of a sudden, hey, I'm doing this from, you know, I'm spending five to 10 hours a week on this. Now I've got 40 to 60 hours a week to spend on this. I've got to go and sort of backfill all this sort of debt we've had from me just being laser focused on, on this stuff. I'm spending all this extra time. Surely the, the growth inflection is going to, you know, I'm going to see all my extra time is going to result in extra growth and everything. And it didn't. Growth even slowed a bit, I think, because I'd shifted focus of, well, I've got all this time now. I can just go and build these other things that will be useful that actually weren't useful at all, right? And so this sort of laser, this laser focus initially was sort of imposed. I mean, that year 2017 was the first year I was doing it full time. It was a really fun year, right? It's great to be able to say, hey, yeah, you know, I'm working on this project full time, right? It'd been, been organically growing for a long time. You know, IPinfo is finally ready, right? I'm spending my full time attention on it. We can build out a bunch of stuff. And it's an exciting period. It continued to grow during that period, not as much as I'd hope my full time attention might shift it. It's very frustrating because you're used to being a high performer, you know, and you expect that your energy will pay off. Yeah, it was. Then you ask the question back to like, well, does it even matter if I show up, right? Well, hey, like, why am, why am I spending like you know, 40 hours a week on this, right? If it was doing great at uh, five, 10 hours a week, why not do that? And I think partly is that we've got to have faith that this will, this will pay down the road, right? That I'm not seeing this today, but you know, at some point we're going to need an admin dashboard, right? At some point a user's going to need a dashboard. There's plateaus too. I think that's one of the things that's been very difficult for me to remember because now I'm doing my third startup. In the early days, I was just running around like crazy, having fun. And it just didn't clock that we broke through these clear plateaus. And that when you're in the middle of a plateau, that faith element's a big part of it because you don't see the returns on your work right away. And I think also it's the, there are definitely plateaus. I think also like not everything works out, right? Like not every bet is okay. And I think it's, it's having faith that like there will be a bet that does. We could try three or four things. And I think I did in that year, shifting paid plans around doing something like, what is it that's going to kick that growth curve back up? And yeah, you can slog away on a bunch of things that end up being total dead ends. And I think that's okay, because as long as you're going to keep going and, and there will be something out there, right, does move the needle um, and lots of things. And I think, you know, sometimes you just got to try a bunch of things, a bunch of stuff's not going to work. That can be very frustrating and dejecting in the moment but it's all sort of on the path to figuring out what that thing is, right? And it's sometimes, hey, you're lucky. The first thing you try is the thing that works. Just as often as not, it might be the 10th. So I think it's just about keep going and, and keep plugging away. What did ultimately work for you? What, looking back on it, what are some things that moved the needle? So I don't think there was one specific thing. Um, I think partly it was an adjustment from this doing well without my time commitment to, okay, now I've got more time. I think it just, it was never going to scale in that way, right? Hey, I'm spending, you know, five times more hours, it's going to grow at five times the rate. Like that just wasn't realistic. I'm not sure if that was my real expectation, but emotionally it felt bad that, that wasn't the case, right? Totally. I, I'm glad you've flagged that up. Yeah, that was just a just an adjustment in, in sort of like, okay, yeah, this is just how it's going to be. But I think it's just plugging away. Like you say, there are plateaus, right? And there have been a bunch of different inflection points. And so I think most of the biggest ones have been bringing on new people, right? And I think where it's been from, okay, I'm, there's too much support volume. I can outsource this. That's fine. But what I've noticed is every time I outsource something like that to someone good, that whole function gets better. And then that, yeah. that actually becomes a driver of opportunity. And so you're back in the early days when people would email me and say, Yo, oh, I've got a problem with your API. You know, I mean, the API was my baby at that point. I wouldn't phrase it this way, but I might be thinking, oh, screw you. Like my API is pretty good, right? I got a problem with you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what didn't you understand about my API? Um, whereas... <laughs> you know, hire a great support person. They're like, oh, I'm really sorry you feel that way about the API. You know, let, let us get some feedback. Then you go from potentially having an argument with someone to like suddenly someone's like, oh, actually, this has been a great experience. How can I 
buy more API credits with you or, or do something else. And I think, you know, you can almost in our sort of growth curve, you can point to like, oh, that's when we hired that person, right? And that, oh, that's what, you know, and they sort of really changed the game in, okay, we're shooting some emails back and forth. So, okay, now we have a support system, right? We're sending back good things. And the same, you know, we start doing some sales, a lot of it was self-serve. And then a bunch of people would email me and be, hey, can we jump on a sales call? And I'd say, no, you know, the credit card forms on the website, what do you want to talk to me for? And, and I'd push back on a lot of them. And finally, you know, I'm still full-time at this point. For, I think the first enterprise sales call, I was like, fine, I'll, I'll jump on a call on my lunch break. You know, this guy saying something, and I'm like, well, you know, this is going to be a thousand bucks a month, right? I think our, our plans were like, you know, 50 bucks, or whatever. And he's like, yeah, sure. And I'm like, oh, wow. You know, like, like I thought that was a, a ludicrous amount of money that he would never pay, but at least he would stop asking <laughs> for phone calls. And he's like, sure. And I was like, oh, damn, you know, I should do some more of these calls and I should ask for some more money. And so, yeah, then it's like, okay, well, then now we've got to start building out some enterprise sales stuff. And, you know, so then it's a lot of time me figuring that out. And it's like, we just go and hire someone great that's done a bunch of this stuff before, you know, and, and then you can see the inflection point, right? Instead of me spending months figuring out what sort of paperwork they need, hey, here's the standard template we use, great, right? And those sorts of things just sort of come together. So I think a lot of it's been, yeah, hiring great people that, you know, where it's, there's a need for them. You're like, hey, here's some stuff we need to do, but they can sort of bring a whole sort of level of experience um, and professionalism to that make it a lot more efficient and effective. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because you talk about people, but you run a technology company, you know, and there is a lot of idealization online of high levels of automation and putting something out into the web and letting it print cash for you. Um, yet you have a very technical company and people are a big part of that growth equation. Yep, that's interesting. And I think, you know, I, I do wonder about this, about, you know, the shift of, you know, large tech startups that raise a bunch of money, right? There's a lot of that. And now you're seeing companies like us, right, that are bootstrapped, but building successful businesses that maybe could be a venture-backed business. And then you see these sort of uh, single-person companies. And I think we'll see more of all sorts of different types of companies, right? I think technology does enable that, right? I mean, it's just, you know, our company probably couldn't have existed 10 years ago, right, without Zoom and Slack and all these tools, right? It would have been much harder to do and, and to track these sorts of things and communicate. But I think, you know, and so a question for me has been with IPM, you know, could I continue to run it as a one-person thing, right? Like back like I did in, in 2017. And I think it may have been possible. I think we couldn't have got to the scale we've got to, right? I think it would have been much more challenging. Um, and I think the business would look very different. And so I do think there are probably types of business that sort of require different types of teams and different things. And I think there are probably lots of services you could just put on and, and launch as a single person and have a lot of success with and a lot of traction. I do think for IPM, it does need these sort of, like these people. And it would be, you could build that some automation and maybe say, oh, but, you know, we need 10% less headcount over the next year if we build some automation or even you got super aggressive and said 50%. You probably can add automation and different things to sort of change the size at which a business needs to, to operate. But it feels to me as a sort of a natural size that sort of businesses and problems gravitate towards. I wonder if you could share some of your learnings about building a sales team, because I think there are a lot of us in the situation that you mentioned earlier where we're selling something for $30, but if we were to pick up the phone and do a little bit of bespoke positioning, now all of a sudden it's a $3,000 solution. Yeah. That for me was the biggest surprise on the whole sort of sales side. And I think the biggest surprise, the biggest thing that lots of sort of developer engineer background people like me running businesses don't realize, right? So I, I talked to a lot of other founders and CEOs and even people that are running these successful sort of SaaS businesses, 
haven't yet realized, oh, wait, I can do these sort of enterprise contracts to these big enterprises, right? And I see a lot of people saying, oh, this is really annoying. This company, you know, reached out to me. They want me to do vendor onboarding and security questionnaires and all this stuff. And, you know, it's only 50 bucks a month. This is a huge headache. I'm going to send them an angry email. It's like, no, you just tell them the price is 5K a month and they will probably just pay it, right? To a large enterprise, you know, a Fortune 500 company or something, right? They're going to want a sales meeting with a bunch of their VPs, a bunch of decision makers. And obviously Facebook is very small compared to some of these massive companies or, or was when I was there. But even just, you know, that's my experience of a sort of a large company, seeing some of these decisions that happen and, and you know, the internal cost of, to a large business to go and onboard a new vendor cost them thousands of dollars, right? If not tens of thousands, right? You know, more than you could ever charge them, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. More exactly. More you could charge them. Whether you charge them 50 bucks, 5,000 bucks, or 50,000 bucks, they probably will look exactly the same to these large companies, right? Uh, you know, they're making you fill out these vendor onboarding questionnaires, but they've got a whole team that then has to go and review them, that has to invent that. You know, they, they probably got a team of hundreds of people just to procure in software. And so, you know, they are already spending tens of millions of dollars on employees to go out and find software to buy. And so I think that was a huge wake up for me when, you know, like I said, that first customer like, oh, it's a thousand bucks a month. And he's like, sure, right? It's, it's you know, and even some customers, we've got customers much, much, much larger now, but even some customers have gone to and I'm like, well, hey, that's 30K a year. And they're like, oh, that's great. I can just put that on my company credit card. The scale of some of these organizations, if you haven't been part of procurement at a massive organization or haven't done these sort of enterprise sales before, it requires a somewhat a shift in organization because it is a headache, right? To go and do all this paperwork and all this stuff. Um, but I think that the biggest surprise to me and, and probably a lot of other sort of developed background people is the expectation isn't that they're paying the list price on the website, right? They're not expecting to get out their credit card and pay 49 bucks. They know they've got a bunch of special requirements. Well, it's not even necessarily that they need like your product built in a bespoke way. Yeah. It's that they need that documentation. They need the sales process. They need you to go through the RFP. One of the things that jumped out to me when you said the price doesn't matter, sometimes you can price things too low for these organizations and then yep. they just don't trust that you have the experience. 100%. I think it's also a red flag for them because a lot of these enterprises the actual software, the thing they're buying actually doesn't matter to them. I mean, it matters to them that they're buying, but they're buying a lot more, right? They're buying a relationship with you. You know, they're buying like, oh, if this goes wrong. Exactly. That account representative that also gets paid a lot of money, they want to deal with that person. Yeah. And they, you know, they want to be able to call you if there's a problem, right? And they ideally don't want a problem, but they want to know that like, if there is a problem or there's an issue, it's going to get fixed, right? And you should be reassuringly expensive so that you are going to prioritize their fix because ideally there is no fix. But <laughs> if this enterprise calls you up at four in the morning and says like, hey, I need this fixed tomorrow, their expectation is going to be that you fix it. And if you're charging them 50 bucks a month, I mean, why would you? Um, but you know, if you're charging them tens or hundreds of right. thousands, then you, you will fix it and you should fix it because, you know, and that will lead to a longer relationship. But I think exactly, if you come back to these enterprises and say, hey, yeah, we'll charge you 50 bucks a month, they'll be like, well, you've misunderstood the kind of relationship they have and what they need from you, right? They do not just need that software. They need that ongoing relationship and support. And they need, you know, if, if there's something going on in the enterprise where they're like, hey, actually, I'm getting questioned on why we picked this solution over the other one. Well, that's on you to go and help them prove that it's much more than just a transactional purchase of software. Um, and so that, yeah, the, the, it, you're, you're selling that whole package, right? And the commitment from you as a company is more, but the payment is more um, and the relationship different. And so I think, yeah, a lot of, whether you're starting in a SaaS business or even have a successful one, 
miss the enterprise side can be far more lucrative, but it does require a lot more work from your side that isn't on the software, right? It's on that relationship with them. It's on the materials for them. It's yeah. on the support for them. It's on the guarantees that like, hey, we're going to be here for you. Um, and that's really the piece that they're buying. Ben, you've been a part of the startup ecosystem, reading Paul Graham's essays, going to meetups in London and everything. And we've got a whole new crop of fresh graduates that are quitting their jobs, that are their side projects got steam over the pandemic, but maybe they haven't been to the meetups, they haven't hung out in Silicon Valley. They're just listening to podcasts like this, checking out forums and things. I'm wondering if you could help fill in some of the picture that might be obscured if you're simply looking at the bootstrapper's life or the startup's startup uh, life from internet content. What are some things from your experience that you see regularly that you wish founders were more clued into? I think it's hard work is a good point. You know, sometimes I think it can appear very glamorous, right? Oh, running a business and um, you know, there's you know, lots of acquisitions happening for lots of money and you know, it can seem like, oh, hey, yeah, I just hack on a keyboard for a little bit and sold my company and you know, now I'm living on a beach. That does happen. I think that's pretty rare. I think you have to really enjoy it. There's, you know, and it, it can be a big commitment. You know, I've been doing IPMFO full-time now for five years. Um, I imagine I'll be doing it for, you know, at least five years more. Um, so these projects can be, you know, huge commitments, hugely rewarding, um, but they're not easy. Back to the bit we said earlier, lots of bets can go wrong, right? Sort of having that faith and commitment and, and that ties into like really liking what you're working on to keep pushing forward and keep, keep putting through. That is what sometimes gets missed is, uh, hey, this looks great. This can be really fun. And it absolutely can, 100%. But it can require a lot of energy and effort too. It seems like uh, learning how to be a world-class engineer is a great on-ramp into the startup life. If you were to start fresh today, say you were 16, 17, 18 years old, how would you pursue building that skill set, even if you're in your mid-20s or mid-30s? Yeah, I mean, that, that was that was 100% my, my on-ramp, right? And I, I came to startups through engineering, right? And so I started as an engineer, wanted to be a great engineer, and then learned learn about this world of startups and great, let's go and apply my engineering talents there and then evolve that way. I think that 100% makes sense. I think that's probably true for any sort of specialist role, right? If you say, I want to be a great engineer or a great marketer or a great whatever, you may try to start out, start up out for a couple of years and be like, actually, like, I don't like this. That's fine. You can go be a engineer or a marketer or whatever at a different type of company, right? Or do it yourself as a freelancer or, or there are different ways that you can take that if you've got that skill set. One thing that worked really well for me was side projects. You know, lots and lots of different side projects, lots of ways to tackle sort of real world problems, build toy projects, you know, actually ship something is great. I think that's a really good way to, to, to kind of sharpen that. I think one of the things that's maybe not clear when you listen to podcasts like this is how many very mediocre non-starter projects that we've all like fully shipped. Like it was out there in the world, people used it and it's a distant memory. I can hardly even hearken the domain name or, you know what I mean? Like yeah. there's just tons of them because it takes a lot of failure. I think that's one of the themes of our talk today is, you got to do a lot of things and you just need one of them to get on base, you know, and to make yes. it work. And I actually think that's, that's a great point. I think you, know, you talk about number of ship ones, then the number of unship ones, you know, the amount of pro empty project folders or project folders with some code in, you know, or domain name. You know, I, I like, yes, I, I'm sure I've you know, forgotten more than I can remember. It needs the one thing to be successful. And I think as well, the surprising thing for me was how clear it was when IPMFO was successful. So, so many projects I shipped, and I'm like, well, hey, this isn't successful yet, right? But I just need to like launch one more feature or I just need to like get one more blog post written about it or do one more thing. And it always felt like these sort of uphill pushes. And some of them had some moderate success, but there were, it, it was always an effort. Whereas with IP Info, 
there's still been a need to put a lot of effort in, but it was you know, the traction was sort of straight away. You have that tailwind. Yeah, huge tailwind, right? And I think it's it's hard to put a finger on exactly what that is, but you can tell, right? And so I think you know people are struggling with the project and being like, hey, do I just need to keep working harder on it? It may be best to try something different and try something. It could be related, could be whatever. You know, learn some new skills, try some different things. And I think, you know, certainly from my perspective, as soon as I had one where it's like, you know, and like I say, I had no expectations for IPinfo. It wasn't, hey, this is going to be the big project, but it very quickly sort of started going in that direction. Big shout out to Ben Dowling for stopping by the show. You can check out to see what he's up to over at ipinfo.io. What a great story from side hustle to growing startup that's reaching significant scale and they're growing very, very fast. So incredible to talk to Ben and to see the passion he has for what he's doing. Any parting shots? Give me that resting heart rate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Looking at mine right now, it's pretty chilled out. So. <laughs> That's it for this week. We'll be back as always next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. 